I want to welcome you again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad you're here with us this morning as we continue on walking through um, the gospel of John. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to meet you. And so if you have time after the service and I have not had a chance to meet you, I, I would love to. So stick around and at least say hi, because I would really love um, to, to, to get to know you and, and to, to hear your name and, and those kinds of things. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in to this passage. God, we're, thank you, we're, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for um, you revealing yourself to us in your word so we can know about you and to learn about you and to get to know you relationally. I pray this morning as we look at this passage, this, this narrative that John has put here in uh, this place in, in his gospel, that I pray that we would be able to put ourselves in the positions of the people in the story. I pray through looking at how Jesus interacts with um, these different kinds of people, I pray you would um, change us. I pray we would change our minds, I pray we would change our desires, change our hearts, and that you would change how we live. I pray when we leave this place, we would be different than when we came in as a result of your word and your spirit working through your word. God, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, um, in this particular passage, um, we're, going to, we're going to see some things that I want to kind of caution us and give us just um, something to think about as we dig into the passage. Oftentimes, when um, we come to a passage like this, and there's different characters in the story, it's easy for us to say to ourselves as we're reading it, well, I'm not like this person, or I wouldn't have reacted this way, or that's not my situation. And it's, I think it's human nature for us to compare ourselves to other people and kind of think, I'm not that bad, or I don't have that particular issue. This past week, we were on vacation in Colorado, and we had the, um, the opportunity, I don't know if it was the opportunity, I don't mind driving, but we drove there, and we probably drove for... It's close to 40 hours over, the, over, the, over those five days or so. And so there was a lot of driving. There was a lot of conversation about driving between me and my wife, Nicole. And I did most of the driving. And one of the things that I like to say, and, and, I like, and I'm definitely thinking in, and I'll tell Nicole every once in a while, that at any given time, that I am the best driver on the road. And there's really no, there's no debating that. I'm not saying I'm the best driver in the world, because that would be really arrogant, but at any given time, and the cars in my area, I am the best driver on the road at the time, and I drive like it, right? And I, I rage like it, and I talk to other drivers like that, right? And in that situation, right, I am, I am looking down upon other drivers. I'm putting myself um, in, a, in a position above them, and I think, and there's a lot of self-righteousness in that, of course, and we can do the same thing with God's Word. When we see people in the scriptures, we can be quick to dismiss them like they're not like us. And I want to caution us today that as we look at the, the characters in this story, we need to not be so quick to dismiss them and say that we're not like them. And maybe some of you come in here and you're fully aware that you're like the people in this story today. Maybe you're hurting 
You're looking for healing. You feel broken. And if that describes you, you're in a perfect place today. It have come on the perfect day because we see a story about Jesus healing this man at the pool. Now, when John includes stories like this, these events in his gospel, they aren't just miracles that he's including that happen. They're actually signs. You may think, well, what's the difference between a sign and a miracle? Well, a sign actually communicates something about Jesus. Signs are instructive. They teach something about the person and work of Jesus. At the end of the Gospel of John, we saw this at the beginning of the book. We looked at the end to see what John's purpose was. And he said, the purpose for me writing this book is that you may believe. That you may believe in Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. And he also says in that same paragraph that there are a lot of things that Jesus did that aren't included in this gospel. John says that. So John has intentionally included some things, that he's included these signs. So when we read something like this, yes, it's a miracle, but it goes even further than that. It's a sign about the person and work of Jesus. And where we find ourselves in this gospel, in the first four chapters, the, the posture towards Jesus was one of um, was intrigue, and there was, a, there was an openness to Jesus. There was some measure of acceptance to Jesus in the first four chapters. But that changes in chapter five, and it continues to go further and further downhill as John's gospel goes on. People are beginning to not receive him. People are beginning to not think he is awesome and great and want to follow him. So there are really three questions this morning that are going to guide our time together. Here are the three. Number one, do, do we realize we are sick? Do we realize we're sick? Number one. Number two, do we want to be well? Do we want to be healed? Number three, will we believe the word of God and what it says about how we get healed? So do we realize we are sick? Do we want to be healed? And do we realize the answer is found in believing God's word about the person and work of Jesus? So let's jump into the passage. Let's read the first uh, few verses here. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, John doesn't give us the name of the feast, what feast it was. Commentators are kind of in disagreement about what this could have been. It's not that important, but... It is, it's, it's, a, it's a big feast, we know that, because John pointed it out. Maybe Pentecost, maybe Passover, commentators um, disagree on that, or what that could be. But John doesn't give us that, so we just know that it was, a, it was a, uh, an important time in Jerusalem, and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Verse 2, now they're in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Let's talk about this man a little bit, okay? John doesn't give us exactly what is wrong with the guy, right? Could be um, an injury, could be a sickness, could be a paraplegic. We don't know what was wrong with this, this, this gentleman, right? but it was important. I mean, it was serious and it was important because John actually um, adds this detail of 38 years. John goes out of his way to say, and it's not 40, not 35. He's not rounding here. He says 38 years. He's exact 
in how many years he says this man was here. John's trying to make a point. This man was here a long time, and he couldn't walk. The only way he could get around was by crawling or by somebody lifting him up to take him where he wanted to go. This is where we need to stop and imagine how hard life had been for this guy. 38 years. That's as long as many of us in this room have been alive. Double the amount for some of you in this room that have been alive. 38 years not being able to walk. And he says he's at this pool, this pool, and, and this pool was, had, a, had a covering around it and allowed the people there to kind of sit under this covering, probably to get, to get shade, while they waited for um, this pool to be stirred up. Now, there's, there's um, a kind of myth and, and a tales of this water start, would start bubbling, and that led the people then to believe that there was some magical powers. And one myth was that an angel would come and stir this water, and while the water was moving, if you could get into the water, then you could be healed of whatever, whatever ailment you had there. So oftentimes it was a race, down to the water for the people who were waiting for the water to be stirred up. Now, we, we don't know if that's, that's true or not, and that's not necessarily um, biblical to any degree, but we know that even, even today there are places that have been shown that are natural springs that have a higher mineral co- content, right? And people go to natural springs to, to, to have experience some kind of healing property. So this isn't completely far-fetched, but we know it's, there's a little bit of, of magic that they're thinking that it goes into this um, particular pool. And this is where we need to be careful not to look down on this man. We, we can tend to think quickly, hey, well, this is kind of silly, right? Like this man couldn't walk for 38 years, and he thought just getting in this pool while it was moving, he actually thought that it would heal him. Are we serious? I mean, we, we, we can kind of laugh to ourselves and again begin to look down on this particular man in what he was trying to do. But we do the same kinds of things. Many of us have been, have been looking to something other than God and Jesus for many, many years for healing, for value, for identity, for worth. And those things just aren't coming through on the promises they're making. Those things aren't healing us. They're not giving us the value. They're not giving us the identity, but we continue to go back to those things over and over and over. We could say that we all have pools of Bethesda in our lives that we continue to look to and to wait for, to provide, and to we hope that they will heal us of whatever um, ailments, physical, spiritual, emotional, that we may have. Number one, we must realize that we are sick. And we are in need of healing. All of us are. It's not unlike at the beginning of COVID a few years ago before there was a vaccine and before there were tests. If you remember those first few months, we didn't know who was sick and who wasn't sick. There were symptomatic people, unsymptomatic people. It was confusing because we didn't know who was sick, who actually had the virus at any given time. And that unknown was scary. And it's the same way with us. Maybe we don't have the same ailment as the man at the pool, but we are all sick to some degree and need Jesus to heal us. And notice that Jesus actually goes to this place. John says Jesus goes directly to the pool to connect with these people, right? This is a place you avoided. This is a place that most people didn't want to go anywhere near because of the sick, 
because of the hurting. They didn't want to be in that environment, yet Jesus goes directly to be with the sick. One commentator called these types of people the living dead. It's like the living dead here at this pool, yet Jesus is not afraid to get in the middle of humanity's brokenness and sickness and lameness. He goes directly to them. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. You can begin to hear the kind of the pity in the man, kind of making excuses. And he does have some excuses. But when Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed, he doesn't immediately say yes. He starts listing the reasons why he hasn't been able to get healed in the first place. But notice again, Jesus initiates. He goes after the man. He doesn't sit there at the pool waiting for someone to come to him. Jesus goes directly to the man. This is a principle throughout the scriptures that Jesus initiates relationship with his people. Jesus initiates relationship with sinners. Paul says in Romans 3 that no one seeks God. No one seeks after God. Not one. And it's not that people don't seek different aspects of God or people are intrigued by different aspects of God or people are interested in different aspects of God. What this means is that no one actually seeks God in his totality, in all of his characteristics, in all of his personhood and who he is. No one is going to fully seek that God, apart from God acting first on someone's mind and on someone's heart. God comes after us. We don't go after him. And this is really good news. This is really good news for all of us because we all, none of us are perfect. We don't always see things clearly. We miss things. When we're sick, we don't always go to the right place to find healing. When we're spiritually kind of broken inside, we don't often seek the right kinds of things. So it is good news that the God of the universe seeks us to have a relationship with us. Now, another aspect of this is this man, and kind of his excuse he gives and his posture at this point, he seems to kind of gotten used to being the sick guy at the pool. He's a sick guy, kind of feeling sorry for himself. He's, he's been there for 38 years. He probably has built up this really thick identity of being the guy who's sick and the guy who can't walk and the guy who maybe people feel sorry for. It's no different than us. We can get comfortable in our sin. We can get comfortable in our false identities that we, 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 we chase after and we give ourselves. Because they, they satisfy, at least for a short period of time, for glimpses, we get little pieces and say, yes, that feels good, and then they don't live up to what we hope they would. This could be anything. It could be codependent relationships. It could be emotional wounds. Could be baggage from your past. And you say things like, I'm just the kind of person that blank, 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 because of something that has happened in your past. We are all prone to wear masks and pretend to be people, different people, to be accepted. We hide, we fake it. We're like chameleons and try to blend into the people around us that we want to be most like and be accepted by. See, we're all, we all get caught up in this cycle, and we're kind of comfortable. Even though 
it, we see this and we're like, why would this man not want to be healed after 38 years of not being able to walk? And we can say that about ourselves. Why wouldn't we want to seek wholeness and healing and redemption in Jesus rather than the things we continue to chase after? Do we make excuses when the offer to be healed put, is put out before us? And notice it takes some responsibility, right? Jesus offers this, right? Jesus offers this to the man. It takes some responsibility to realize that you're sick enough to need help. You're broken enough to say yes to Jesus. And Jesus is not saying fix yourself. He's not saying, hey, you need to figure out how to walk. All he says is pick up your mat and walk. Believe, trust, have faith in me. Let me give you the power. Let, my, let me in, the doctor, the great physician, let me heal you. You have to let go of what you're depending on, Jesus, in a sense, said to the man. And notice that the man showed no faith up to verse 7. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. doesn't know that Jesus can heal him. He has no faith, yet in verse 8 we see Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. See, that Jesus even comes after and heals people physically, can heal people emotionally, mentally, even when there's no faith. This man did not have faith when Jesus healed him. Now, quickly, once he was healed, he got up, took up his mat, and walked. He believed Jesus to some degree, believed at least he could heal him. Now, he's not believing in him as his Lord and Savior. We'll see more about this in a second. But he heard it. He, he believed in some sense that Jesus could do it, and then he acted upon it. Right? These are really the three steps to, 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 to believing in anything, right? You hear it, you believe it, or you count it as true, and then you act upon it. You act upon it on, on whatever you think the truth is. Let's keep going, verse 9 into verse 10. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said, notice he's just saying man, he doesn't know it's Jesus, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So here come the religious leaders, right? They get wind of this. This man who's been around this area for 38 years would have been well known. This guy starts walking. It's going to create quite the stir. And of course the religious leaders notice this, and they know that it's the Sabbath. They don't enjoy the, the fact that the man's been healed after 38 years. They don't enjoy the fact seeing the man walk on his own two legs and probably running around and, 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 and breathless from being healed. They, they can't enjoy it because they're so worried about the Sabbath and breaking of the Sabbath, their rules. They couldn't have enjoyed this miracle. And God's law says nothing about being able to pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath. It says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's the extent of God's law on the Sabbath. Now, the, the, the religious folks, the Pharisees, they wanted to make sure that no one broke that law so they begin to set up layers and layers of other rules around that law to make sure that law didn't get broken. And we're guilty of this as well. 
Right? When we want something to not be broken, the tendency is, and you, you parents know this, right? the tendency is to create more barriers around that thing to make sure that thing doesn't ever happen. And this was what the Pharisees were guilty of. Commentators and historians say there were 39 specific like, sub-laws under this the rules, their rules under this biblical law about keeping the Sabbath. Crazy ones, like you couldn't look in the mirror because you, they were afraid that you would have a hair out of place and you would move that hair and that would be working on the Sabbath. There was a rule that you couldn't go out past a thousand feet from your place of residence, your home. So they had this loophole that they created where you could tie a, a thousand foot rope to your house that rope becomes part of your house. You attach the rope to yourself, and then you can go out actually 2,000 feet because you can go out the length of the rope and then another 1,000 feet because now the rope's a part of your house. This is how ridiculous it got for the Pharisees in trying to kind of get around this law. You see, the heart behind this is so broken and wicked. It's because they were looking for their salvation and rule-keeping. They got caught up in trying to keep this, actually, this actual law of God. They got so caught up into that that they started creating other rules around that law, around that thing they were trying to keep. The man is spiritually sick as well as physically sick, but the religious leaders are too sick. They're too blind to actually see what has happened here. They're too blind to see any of this because they're looking to their own salvation in their works in keeping their own rules that they created. They are just as sick and even more sick, we see throughout the rest of the Gospels, than this man at the pool. Verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So it's nice of Jesus. Notice the kindness here to go back and find the man. The man didn't know who Jesus was. It says Jesus had to kind of escape because the crowds were around him. So Jesus finds him again, though, makes a point to go back, and it reintroduces itself to him, and he says this, that he, he says that, see, you are well, sin no more. Now, again, this is, this is a weird saying that Jesus gives him um, that, that John highlights here. Probably what he's trying to do is to create some urgency in the man. He knows the man's not a believer at this point. He's not a Christian. He's not following Jesus. He doesn't think Jesus is his Lord and Savior. So he's trying to wake him up. He's trying to make sure that he knows that, hey, um, sin no more so that nothing worse will happen to you. And we, the, worst, the worser thing, the worst thing that could happen to him is that he could spend eternity separated from God. So Jesus for sure had this in mind when he was talking about things being worse than what he had already gotten healed from. Verse 15, the man went away. Listen to this. This is crazy. The man went away, and he immediately told the Jews, which when, when John says the Jews, he's talking about the religious leaders, right? And in this context, we know that. And told the Jews or the religious leaders that it was Jesus who healed him. So he already knows, he already knows that the guys that are looking for Jesus, they're, they're mad at him. They're angry at Jesus. And then he gets the name of Jesus because Jesus comes back to reintroduce himself and then he immediately goes to the next verse and kind of rats Jesus out. Hey, I got the name of the guy. I got the name of the guy you're looking for. His name's Jesus. We're like, this guy, we get frustrated with him, right? Why can't you just go on about your business? Why can't you go tell other people about Jesus? Go back to the pool and tell people about Jesus that they could be healed as well. 
verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Listen to verse 18. That, that, that's kind of a strange uh, thing that Jesus says there. John explains it in verse 18. This, is, this was why the Jews were seeking all, all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay? So he, he, he's a sense saying, not only are they, are they mad that he's breaking the Sabbath, that was what they were initially mad for, but then when Jesus responds, yeah, my, my father and I, we don't stop working. We keep working. And it was widely known that the only person who didn't have to be, obey the Sabbath was God. Because God never ceases to rest. Right? God keeps the universe going by his hand. Right? God doesn't rest. He continues. Now, he rests in his work. We'll get to that here in a second, right? But God doesn't ever take his hands off the world and let things go. God was the only one who could do that, and that was widely accepted. So when Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working, like that, that just that sends the religious leaders off majorly, right? And this is what ends up really getting Jesus killed in the end, his claim that he is actually equal to God, that he was fully God along with being fully man. And what is really coming up against the religious leaders now is he's messing with their authority. They've created this authority structure. They can push people around with their power because of these rules they've created. And now Jesus is breaking one of the most important rules that they've held up high in a sense of kind of bullied people with. And so Jesus is directly confronting the authority that they've gotten from these rules. And Jesus is, is, is demanding, in a sense, that they submit to a higher authority. He's trumping them. They all have this little, these little kingdoms that they have inside their minds and their hearts and their lives where they get to be the king of their kingdom, and Jesus is coming in and just crushing all of that. But here's the deal. We're no different. We all have our little kingdoms as well. We have things where Jesus tries to press into us, either we read it in his word or the, the spirit communicating to us, and we say, no, 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 not that, Jesus. No, you don't get that. You don't get this have say in that part of my life, Jesus. No, I get to determine what's right and wrong in this part of my life, Jesus. Like this feels really, really good, so that possibly can't be against God's will. These are the things, this is how we push back against Jesus when he tries to call us to submit to a higher authority. See, underneath a lot of our issues, my issues, your issues, is this nature of authority. It's nature of authority. We don't want to give Jesus authority. We don't want to let God have the ultimate, God's word have the ultimate authority over all parts of our lives. And the part of our growth as being, as disciples and as followers of Jesus as time goes on is over time giving more and more of our submission to Jesus' authority. The more we get to know Jesus and we get to see Jesus and experience Jesus, we want to give him more of ourselves. We want to give him more of those places that we are attended that we're tempted to keep back from him. This is how authority and submitting to that authority connects to our discipleship. So the question for us is, what is the highest authority in your life? For the Pharisees, for the religious leaders, it was, it was the, the rules, it was the structure, it was the obedience to the laws that they created. That is what gave them life. That is what they were looking to for their salvation. 
And Jesus comes in and push, puts his finger right on that button. The Sabbath, a big one. Another question, will you believe the words that Jesus has spoken? Will you believe? Will you believe like the, 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 the man that we looked at last week who was healed? The, 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 and then, then the pool, uh, the man at the pool this week. Will you believe that Jesus can heal you? So number one, do you see that you are sick? Back to kind of the outline. Do you see that you are sick? And do you want to be well? Maybe you're more like the guy at the pool, or maybe you're more like the religious leader, looking to your own works to save you. Both are sick. Both are in need of a savior. The final point is, will you look to Jesus for healing and salvation? And this is, it's interesting how Jesus kind of comes in, and he, he knows what he's doing, right? He picks his fight. He is picking this fight on the Sabbath. He could have gone to the pool a day later. He could have gone to the pool a day later. This guy that was there for 38 years would have been there another day. But he chooses to go on the Sabbath. He chooses to pick this battle. He wants to show, he wants to expose the religious leader's faulty thinking in this area. What was meant to be a day of, of rest, what was meant to be a day that was created for man, for man to rest in God's work, for man to enjoy God by taking a break and trusting God that everything is going to continue to work the way it's supposed to work, and man can take one day off. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus says in a later point. You see, the Sabbath is really about resting in our salvation. Now, is it smart to stop some physical work? Absolutely on the Sabbath. It's important for us to try to, to, to observe this principle of taking a day off a week and stopping from working physically. But so much more than this is the, to resting from the work underneath the work, resting from our striving, remembering God's grace, Remembering how we've been set free from other false belief systems and false identities and the masks we wear. This is really the rest that God is calling us into with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is really about our salvation rest, a deeper rest. The Sabbath rest refers much more than physical rest. It's this deeper, indefinite rest. And the Sabbath is put into place as a rhythm for us to remember that. Because we get going in our week and our week flies by, we need to take a day off to remember that God is working. To remember that Jesus has done the work on our behalf, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have faith in him. He's done the work for us already so we can rest and have peace in his work, in his rest. Now I've tried to institute the Sabbath for many, many years and I'm still not very good at it. A one day a week rest. And I've gotten where I can put boundaries around physical work and doing things that I normally would do the other six days a week. That's pretty easy. But it's when I'm resting from physical work that the internal lack of peace swells up. I'm missing things. I want to still work. I want to still prove myself. I want to still be impressive. I want people to approve of me. I want control. For me to truly take a day off and just rest and enjoy God's grace this one day a week without anything else coming into this day to kind of disturb that. That's difficult. I have trouble resting from the work underneath the work, the working out my, my, my salvation in a way the similar the, to, the, to the way the religious leaders were. And some of you are like me. You need to rest from the rat race, the grind, 
You need to be able to shut your heart off to those things that distract you from God's grace this, at least this one day a week. And this claim here that he's claiming to be God because he's saying that I, my, my father and I are continuing to work. We don't rest. God doesn't have to keep the Sabbath. And what Jesus says is, I'm up to something. I'm up to something. I'm accomplishing something. And he will accomplish something. He's going to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the work. This is the ultimate work that Jesus would be about, be going to the cross. Jesus takes God's wrath upon himself on the cross, takes the wrath that we deserved on the cross, so he absorbs that wrath. He takes it. He doesn't rest. He takes the wrath upon himself, and then three days later, he rises from the dead, showing that the work has been accomplished. This is why he, on the cross, he can sit there and say, it is finished. Like his work has been done. He has paid the price. He has been sacrificed for our sins. This is the gospel. So again, back to the questions. Will you believe his offer to heal you? Will you believe that? Do you believe you're sick enough to need a healer, to need salvation? Will you submit to his authority? His authority is gentle and lowly. Matthew eleven twenty six through 28, one of the, the passages we've, we've come back to a lot over the last couple of years. His, his authority is gentle and lowly. Burden is light. It's easy. He's shown himself to be worthy by doing what he did on the cross. His authority is gentle and lowly. The triune God is still working today. Through his word, through the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, through his word. He's still working to this day. Listen to this, and I'll have it on the screen. Listen to this kind of old hymn, Rock of Ages. I love this, the, the words here, and I think it communicates a lot of, what, of our, what our posture should be when it comes to Jesus being our healer and, and us submitting ourselves to his authority. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless Look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the flat fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So what do we do with this? Another slide's gonna come up with questions. These are some application questions to ask as we leave. And as, and as we go into communion, I should say before we leave as well. What is your pool of Beth, 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 Bethsida? I have trouble saying Bethsida. Is it like the man? Like you need healing? You're broken? You're suffering? You're prideful? You don't think you need a savior? Or maybe you're more like the religious leaders who we've seen were just as broken. You're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to keep laws that you've created in your mind to be more religious. 
You have a list of the big things that a Christian should not do, and if you can keep those things, you're going to be approved by God. And the people who don't do those things, maybe you're looking down upon them. This is how looking to your own works to save you can bring misery. What is your, your, what is your pool? What do you go to? What do you run to? Spend some time thinking about that. That's the first step, right? Realizing you're sick, realizing that, yeah, maybe you can walk. Maybe it's not the same issue as the man, but we're all sick in some area. Number two, do you want to be healed? Again, the humility. Do you want to be healed? Truly. Not just the Christian say, yeah, 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 I want to be healed. I want Jesus to say, yeah. But no, do you want to do the work that it requires for Jesus to, to get to those deep places in your heart, your identity, your worth, your baggage? Like, do the work. It's the only way Jesus is going to heal you. Talk to somebody about it. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to a mentor. Talk to a friend. Begin to do that deep work. Three, will you believe his word? Will you believe the scriptures? Will you believe that he can save you? Apart from anything that you've done, apart from anything that you can do to save yourself, he can save you. It's by faith through grace alone. Lastly, will you submit to his authority? Will you give him all of you? Will you not hold things back? Will you not say, no, that's mine. That's my area. That, that's, where, that's, that's my kingdom, God. Don't touch that. Be honest, be open-handed, and trust that he's gentle and lowly, that his, his burden is easy and light. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for stories like this. We're thankful that John, the writer, included stories like this where we can see ourselves in these different people. I pray through your spirit that you would convict us this morning. If we think, if those of us in this room think that we're above healing, we don't need it, that we're not that bad, or that we're really religious, good people, I pray you would convict us. I pray you would bring to mind the scripture that Jesus says when he says, I, I have not come to call the righteous but the sick. We have to be sick. We have to admit we're sick to get the healing that Jesus provides. Convict us. Maybe there are people here who need to be comforted, that who already feel afflicted, that who are already guilt-ridden and shame-filled. I pray that you would allow them to be comforted by your grace and your mercy and see that even this man who we don't even get to see if he professes faith. There's no signs that this man at the pool ever began following Jesus, and yet Jesus still showed him grace and mercy by healing him. How much more would he heal and minister to and comfort those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are sons and daughters of God? So comfort us too. I pray your spirit would cause us to reflect on these things as we leave this place and that we would allow the truth that we see that we've seen in God's word today changes from the inside out we love you it's in your son's name we pray amen